people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hi, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam. Uh, I'm joined as ever by Alex. Say hello to the people, Alex. Hello. hello. Uh, and we are here with uh, two out of three of uh, the Empire Never Ended, Fritz and Boris. How are you guys doing? Hello. Pretty good. Yeah. This is our like our third episode, I think, together. Yeah, we're we're practically family now. Although I was yeah. missing the last time, so now I'm here, yeah. <laughs> and we're missed. You were missed. You were missed. Yeah, definitely. Um, we're here to talk about the Turner Diaries, um, which I think people are probably aware is a a piece of kind of um, white nationalist uh, fanfic, I guess, or kind of neo-Nazi fanfic, um, which we'll talk a lot more about. But um, the way at least I wanted to frame this discussion, and uh, this is not my episode, this is Alex's episode, so maybe I'm uh, being presumptive here. Um, the way I wanted to frame this discussion was was around the question, which I think is going to seem slightly academic uh, at the beginning, which is around the question of the relationship between like violence and justification. Now that seems like a kind of a, yeah, as I was saying, like a kind of abstract or obtuse question, but I think it's actually directly and quite immediately relevant right now. Um, we're recording on May the 30th, which is a Monday, uh, 2022, and there's just been two very uh, prominent mass shootings in the US. And the first one uh, was done by someone who's avowedly on the far right, uh, and the second one doesn't appear to have a particularly clear motivation at all. I guess like what I want to kind of open up uh, in talking about that is what might this podcast, which is avowedly about the, the far right, have to say also about the second shooting, right? Um, or what might be the relationship between the two shootings that we could describe or we can, we can understand. Um, on the one way, it's kind of very clear cut. The first shooting was by you know, a person who described themselves as an eco-fascist and so on. That's obviously within our wheelhouse. But there's also this other question, and you've kind of touched upon it in your your series on American fascism um, that you've been doing for a long time, and the kind of the, the, the two parts of that title, American and fascism. Um, and I kind of wonder if there's something to be said about uh, perhaps not fascism in this case, but like America in this case. Um, America is the the only country in the world with uh, this level of mass shootings, at least, um, and there is something in some way that, that needs to be kind of spoken to there. And I think part of the um, the difficulty people have or the kind of resistance people have to, on, on anti-fascists and so on, of talking about mass shootings that don't have an avowedly political content is that they say something like that it's only when there's kind of political content to the shooting that is that, that it becomes kind of important to us or kind of in our wheelhouse. Obviously, it's a disgusting tragedy either way, but it's, uh, you know, it's a kind of a, it only becomes relevant to our, to our politics at that moment. And I want to kind of maybe suggest that there is another way of approaching it, which is to think about the question of the construction of America, like more deeply as a kind of a, uh, um, a kind of component of fire politics on a global scale now. And the thing I kind of maybe kind of to concretize this a little bit, or to make this kind of clearer, is is that I remember reading some research for the first book we wrote, Post Internet Far Right, where we talked about, um, and what the research was showing was that there had been in, in the previous kind of four years until that point, so I think it was research was 2019 to 2015, um, there had been no actual substantial increase in the number of mass shootings taking place in America. But what there had been a massive increase was the political justification 
for mass shootings, which had risen from uh, something like 25% to kind of almost a half of mass shootings had some sort of political content to them. And one way of making a theory that kind of fits that data um, that suggests that with the rise of the far right in America uh, in that period, 2015 to 2019, what we saw was, uh, yeah, kind of a, a rise not in actual amounts of violence, but in people who were predisposed or decided to, who wanted to commit violence anyway, finding a kind of justification that was useful in far-right politics. And so you get the kind of the desire for violence and the justification comes later. I think that's kind of troubling for various reasons. I think it's kind of a, um, not something we should totally give into as like a, a presentation of how this violence works. Um, but I think it's possible also to think that maybe there is a kind of a deeper politicization to this violence um, that stems from a, from, a, from a longer history of America rather than the specific content of far-right ideas. Um, that's all a bit abstract, as I promised it might be. Um, sorry about that. Uh, and it's also not a question. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, uh, apologies for that. Um does that ring any bells? Does that resonate with the, either of you? Does that seem like a coherent way of framing the, the problem? Is there a problem of justification, and so on? Like, what, what am I am I talking nonsense? This has been perplexing me since these two things happened, and the relationship between them has seemed like a kind of uh, it's always like a mystery. I don't know how to to speak about it. Yeah, I mean, it actually does make a lot of sense to me. It's it's something that I was I've been thinking about a lot um, since the Buffalo shooting in particular. Um, reading some of the reactions online about the justifications for it, reading his manifesto and the like, and people kind of bending over backwards to find a political motivation that isn't tied to, let's say, the general history of anti-black violence in particular in America and, uh, you know, <laughs> white vigilante violence that goes back, you know, since the founding of the country. And there was a lot of, you know, discussion about, well, okay, you know, I, th I feel like people were opening the manifesto and doing control F and searching Russia, NATO, Ukraine, trying to find like tie something into what's going on now in geopolitics and then trying to base an argument against that. So it's like, oh, yeah, the Sonnenrad, you know, Azov also used the Sonnenrad, you see like blah, blah, blah. And then people use that as a justification to either whatever. Um, justify the Russian invasion of Ukraine or something like that, but, you know, generally trying to tie it into some outside source. Uh, and, and to me, it kind of felt like um, that was a way of obfuscating the fact that, you know, this kind of, this history of violence uh, towards, you know, non-white populations in particular is is not something that's unique to uh, is something that's unique to America in, in that way or, or other settle settler colonial states as well in particular. But like, you know, not talking about that was fascinating to me. Like, you know, a majority of, you know, the experts were trying to tie it into you know, what the link is to outside uh, sources. What's the, what's the origin of great replacement theory and, and trying to kind of situate it in a more modern context, as opposed to looking back at, you know, the history of America and, and, you know, uh, you know, you can go back to the clan, you know, that this kind of stuff is not unusual. It's been updated and, you know, the, the mass shooting aspect is obviously a, a modern phenomenon, but, uh, 
yeah, I can, <laughs> I can definitely relate to what you're saying there. I mean, which all kind of, I guess, makes a um, a kind of a puzzle what we're doing with the the Turner Diaries, right? which is a particular moment, a particular kind of expression of uh, extreme, let's say, neo-Nazi. I don't know if you agree with that terminology, but like, you know, let's say neo-Nazi kind of fantasy of of, of bloodletting and violence. Um, if we are to kind of stretch the history back, like through you know the KKK and even I would suggest much further back. Um, what is the importance of this one book, right? That happens to give a kind of a, um, a particular fanfic or kind of horror fiction, uh, um, expression to the to this kind of. Uh, I don't want to say elemental because that makes it sound like I'm dehistoricizing it, but like this kind of more profound hatred and, and desire for violence and so on. Like, how does how do we situate the Turner Diaries inside that history without making it? either the 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 single cause of that history you know if that book hadn't been written then this other stuff wouldn't have happened right? i don't think that's viable but also to understand it as a kind of a as an important moment in that in that in that history like yeah you know. mm-hmm. yeah i mean the turner diaries is interesting in in that regard because it is i mean we we talk about um you know what we call fash fic on our show quite a lot because uh, it is uh, something you see in various like you know white supremacist neo-nazi fascist authors you know writing out their fantasies in these kind of often uh completely absurd stories um and it's exclusively dystopian i mean obviously yeah 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 they they very rarely offer any kind of utopian vision for the future it's all you know highly exaggerated extremely violent uh you know, writing and the Turner diaries, you know, is the most famous for a reason. And I think it came up at a very specific point in time, um, you know, kind of pre internet era, um, that gave it, I think more significance, um, than maybe some of the, a lot of the other texts that we've read at least, um, in that, you know, it can be tied to the Oklahoma city bombing, to the order, to, you know, all kinds of other, groups and lone wolf as problematic as that term is (laughs) actions um, throughout like the nineties, especially, you know, in the early two thousands. I think it also just on a technical um, perspective, since it came out in installments in a magazine that was like a well thought out, uh, precisely targeted propaganda outlet before it was a book, you know, I think uh, since it was always inextricably tied to the National Alliance, which is William Pierce's, you know, uh, long running, still running today, barely, but still running organization. Uh, I think that also gave it um, a lot more exposure early on than, say, its predecessors might have had. Like, we talked very briefly about um, one of William Pierce's mentors' books. Uh, Revelo P. Oliver is the uh, uh, presumed author of the Franklin uh, shit letters. it wasn't diaries it was Franklin letters, letters. Yeah. yeah yeah which uh it sounds like was the the basis for the Turner diaries in the end um but again like Franklin letters that came out of like John Birch society shit you know and William Pierce is a very common example of an American neo-nazi who 
maybe had their start in the Birch Society, but whose entire career, like like so many of the ones we've talked about on our show, was basically based on like creating a more apocalyptically minded, um, more uh, sort of, I guess they even use the term propaganda of the deed sometimes uh, to describe their actions, but a much more nihilistic bent. So I think one of the things that makes it American in this way is the apocalyptic attitude of it. That is, it sort of begins, as almost all of the fashion that we've read begins, uh, with like one exception that I can think of. Essentially, the world has already ended. And, um, and anybody familiar with like the writings of James Mason and that sort of siege-pilled thing will, will, will recognize this. Um, as a like a fundamental part of American fashion. I'm gonna stop ruining Alex's episode here, but uh, let's go back a bit and just like um, say what the book is and what happens in the book and like that kind of thing. Let's because uh, I feel like we've I've I've uh, foolishly jumped into like the deep end of the discussion. Uh, so maybe we could just say what is the book, who wrote it, when did it come out, um, what happens in the book, what was the reception like, and so on that kind of thing. And I, we would we could also refer listeners to uh your guys's um three-part i think series two two episodes on the life of the author william luther pierce which are really good and really worth listening to and a really in-depth run-through of the book itself um which i'm very impressed that you guys managed to get through it all um in the time you did and still managed to get a bit of you know keep your minds all the way through it um yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah, I describe it as a comedic take on this book. Um, it's a really shitty bad book. Uh, it's very boring, um, very poorly I, written. I was going to say it's kind uh, of shocking. Uh, it's kind of shocking and dull at the same time. It's like yes. considering its, yeah, yeah. its topic, which is like the building of a, a nuclear genocide. Ultimately, um, oh, it could not be more boring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. Um, we also did an episode on cosmotheism, William Pierce's religion, just to throw that in there. And Resistance Records. We, we and re- stayed oh, on Jesus, yeah. Pierce for way too long, but, I mean, you kind of have yeah. to. It's a very important character. Yes. I mean, yeah, his influence spanned decades. You mentioned he was the leader of the National Alliance. Uh, yeah. Why else is he important? What else did you? Well, yeah, he bought Resistance Records in 1999, which was... Still, I think to this day, it has to have the record as the most successful white supremacist music outlet ever. Um, as far as propaganda went, it garnered the National Alliance something like oh, ridiculous number of members. Like, I think in the first year, they got like a thousand two hundred something members. Like the year that he bought Resistance Records, so um, that was really important. But it was a cash cow too for the movement. absolutely yeah they made a lot of yeah. money off of it. Yeah. Um, but why else is he important? He also is that one of these like many kind of Nazi archetypes of like the smart guy. Uh, he's sort of the quintessential Nazi smart guy. Um, and what I mean by that is that, and, and he himself would make quite a big deal out of this, is that he separated himself from the sort of like degenerate whites in the movement and wanted to make an organization that was somehow more scientifically minded more legitimate people with doctorates and stuff like that and he's sort of the archetype of that i guess yeah the, the, the other person who might kind of cite there is 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 heidegger right who um 
partially becomes the kind of the smart guy of uh, the Nazi movement, mm-hmm. the original Nazi movement, by um, uh, playing up the aspects of his his uh, philosophy that are um, concerned in some ways with a kind of a, a simplicity or a kind of peasant life and so on. Um, yeah, that that's a kind of interesting dimension, I think, to lots of far activism, where it, on the one hand wants to be kind of plebeian. Uh, but on the other hand, wants to be sophisticated and elite and so on. And there's kind of a, sure. a real strong tension there. You get it in street movements in the UK. Um, probably the most kind of obvious uh, part of the alt-right that was that was kind of concerned with doing this is is people like Richard Spencer, who kind of saw themselves as like a kind of sophisticated version of the the more kind of uh, debased um, or base uh, kind of <laughs> right. But also you get in, in Europe a generation identity, which very deliberately tried to recruit out of universities. Uh, not with a great deal of success, has to be said. William Pierce himself also tried to recruit out of universities, but he was largely seen as a joke in the in the sixties when he was trying that out. Sixties, seventies. Um, he had eggs thrown at him and stuff, and he was stink bombed. You know, <laughs> same old story. People don't like Nazis. Yeah, but I mean, he came also out of the American Nazi Party. And, you know, where I mean, we, we did a series on them, too. And uh, that was a lot more of this kind of um, extreme showcasing, uh, extremely crude, um, that kind of thing, which, you know, he William Luther Pierce wasn't really so into because, you know, he came from a science background. And I mean, he played that up a lot, but um I mean, there there are a few others uh, like Nazis at the time that were also kind of lauded for being scientists too, like um, Richard Butler, Butler. And, yeah. and 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 some people like that that they could you know trot out and be like, well, this guy is you know a rocket scientist, you know. Yeah. If you if you don't like yeah. what you know Rockwell and and company are saying, because you know they're just using slurs and you know whatever, then listen to the rocket scientist. Listen to this, you know, listen to the guy yeah. with the PhD. And, I think this might even have some sort of heritage uh, going back to Henry Ford, too. I mean, there's always been this, like, big American engineering type at the helm of uh, a lot of key movements and surprising ones, too. I mean, Aryan Nations, you would never guess, was led by an engineer, (laughs) you know? I mean, it's psychotic. (laughs) So the the book is a kind of a found literature style. It purports to be the diaries of a guy called Earl Turner and and kind of tracks to his career in this terrorist organization, which is just called the organization. And he later joins <laughs> right. a kind of, and uh, which is, uh, I suppose, part of the, part of the, the setup of the book is the organization is posed against the system. And there's, and we, yes. we, we've spoken yes. about in our book about how there's a real ideological simplification in many ways in that all the enemies of white supremacy are kind of melded into one thing to be opposed. So, you know, uh, Obviously, the book is deeply racist and black people are presented particularly badly. But, of course, as a kind of a classic trope of neo, neo-Nazi and fascist literature, uh, black people can't be, uh, are not smart enough to be to be organizing stuff themselves and they have to be led right. by Jewish people. Um, could you just yeah. like very briefly run through the plot of the book as it is? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess... Uh... Man, in very, very short, um, the system started the gun raids. Uh, again, every, the naming conventions in Fashvik are pretty uh, consistent across novels. 
where you just call the thing that you're talking about the thing that you're talking about. So if you need a name for a system, it's the system. If you need a name for an organization, it's the organization. And uh, so the organization forms to resist these gun raids, um, which, of course, we find out are led by uh, Jews and are carried out, of course, as you mentioned, by their sort of um, somewhat less than human uh, black acolytes uh, who cause a lot of chaos. They're in the book. Um, black people mostly occupy positions uh, strategically where the main characters who are undergoing this resistance effort, uh, led by Earl Turner, when they have to do some sort of action sequence, you know, and do that, do the, I don't know, take over a station or fight their way out of something. Uh, the author puts, um, let's say, hapless um, black officials, guards, whatever, um, officers, whatever they are, in those places so that they can be like consistently outsmarted and then massacred by Earl Turner and his crew. Uh, and these plans are just, I mean, they kind of need that like to work, you know, <laughs> like it's a, it's a very um, fantastical uh, account of, of terrorism um, as well as being quite boring at the same time. So with, along with each of these actions that they take, these like things that require them to essentially have imagined a, a world where every race except white people is either evil or stupid, uh, they have, these things have to be already understood to follow the book at all, because nothing that happens can be explained otherwise than, than maintaining these principles. And on top of that, you, of course, because it's something from Nazis, uh, there's lots of weird stuff in there about the character's relationship with like a teenaged girl, um, the sort of constant Nazi fantasies about like miscegenation and rape are ever present in the book. It is like the, the main justification for smaller acts of violence that aren't somehow part of the larger plan of the organization. Most of these have to do with uh, defending a, a white girl's honor or something like this. And, um, and it should be mentioned also that Pierce can't write human relationships at all. Like, he just can't. There's, like, he says emotion. You don't feel any emotion reading this. Mostly just boredom and disgust. But, uh, but he tells you emotions because I don't think he has them <laughs> so he'll be like uh he'll this character earl will see a mutilated white girl in the ruins of the federal building that they bomb to get the computer banks destroyed and stuff like this and uh he'll just comment that he feels sad you know this is like the emotional weight that's carried in this um and apart from that at some point uh yeah earl Earl joins an order which is called the order and they make him read a book which is called the book and uh and then he is a part of this elite group which eventually uh just to cut it all really short um successfully destabilizes not only the u.s but the world um partially by infiltrating military bases and conducting these sorts of covert terrorist acts uh and also through mass executions of race traders which in the book if they're male they tend to be 
political race traders. That is, they were people that were voting in a certain way or, or activists in a certain way. All the women that get hanged on the day of the rope, all of them uh, had relationships with uh, non-white partners. So that's the, the sort of overall attitude of this. And then finally, Earl has to accept a, a suicide mission from the Order because he allowed himself to get captured. And he nukes, uh, he nukes Washington, D.C., and kills himself in glorious self-sacrifice for the movement. Oh, yes. Yeah, so a bunch of nukes happen here. Various nukes go off um, from various places. And in the end, we're, we're treated to this, like... Because it's all, it's all written by, I think his name is Andrew McDonald, right? Is that the purported author? Yeah, so he's an archaeologist in the future who's now telling us, these, or historian or whatever. And he informs us that this nuclear hellscape that the Earth has become is now, at least in part, inhabited by mutants that white people have to battle in the irradiated, uh, whatever, fucking deserts of China or whatever. I mean, it's not a good book, you know? It's quite, it's <laughs> quite telling that, that like, we, Yeah, go on. Uh, I mean, just to, like, set, like, their dystopian reality that the book kind of starts off with, it's, it's um, as Fritz mentioned, right, the, the gun raids happen, which are done by, like, you know, the Cohen Act, which, of course, yes. you know, that's the Thank Jewish-controlled you, yeah. government, but that also, like, whites are an oppressed minority, and... Um, the term like racist is used like pejoratively against them. And so like, yes. you know, white racists kind of are rounded together. up. Yes. Racists are rounded up and, and arrested and tortured and, you know, all this children kind of... make fun of them in the street. Right. Right. And so that's, that's, that's the world order that they're <laughs> dealing with. And that's why they like have to rebel because I guess this um, system managed to, achieve this kind of near totalitarian control without first seizing the guns. And yet they have to seize the guns after this or, um, you know, system is already established. But I mean, again, the storytelling in this is <laughs> really rudimentary and, and yeah. not good. The, 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 the seizing of guns is like, I think a particular person start for the book for this kind of the audience in which, to which Pierce is speaking to, you know, um, the Christchurch shooter in his manifesto, he speaks about wanting to institute these kind of wide-ranging gun laws. And, in a, you know, he doesn't say explicitly, but the, scene, the implication is to kick off the events of the Turner, Turner Diaries. You know, people will rise up when their, their guns are taken away. He makes explicit mention of, you know, American gun laws and things like this. And there's this shift in the book from, I suppose, a libertarianism, like resisting uh, like an oppressive uh, machinery of government to, to taking people's rights away, gun rights, towards a kind of, well, explicit authoritarianism where people are just shot in the street for, in in the end, having guns and not being in, in the organization. Having guns, yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. How, how, I mean, yeah, I think how, that the yeah, seizure of guns uh, is just, again, playing, it's, it's, it's peers playing to, like, one of the, you know, biggest anxieties in, in American society, <laughs> which is, you know... Uh, taking away the guns right and it's a, it's a very relatable thing and that's uh to you know not only just like the far right i mean it's just like a very american phenomenon and you know i think that 
did actually was successful in, you know, helping the Turner Diaries spread a lot because it did get, you know, sold at gun shows and the like in particular. Yes. Yeah. Timothy McVeigh himself, Oklahoma City bomber, sold them at gun shows and uh, handed them out to people like that. But I also wonder if that goes both ways, because, again, like the, the obsession with guns is also something that you built over time. And in the time of the Turner Diaries, it was there. But I don't know if it was quite as total as it is today, although I can't be sure about that. I don't know. Boris, what do you think about that? I don't know. I think that even at the time it was written, that like idea that, you know, world gov is going to come take your guns and that's how they're going to like establish whatever the new world order was definitely something that, you know, existed outside of just even, you know, far right circles. I think just like the average gun owning American did have those fears. Uh, I don't know. So the book is written in 78, um, which is a period uh, kind of at the crest of a very intense period of contestation in American society uh, more more generally, right? So there's been the kind of the 60s, uh, I guess, sexual revolution. And there's lots of kind of um, strife uh, around, um, I guess, the, the post-war settlement in general. I mean, people, listeners of this show will be kind of, I think, vaguely familiar with the story of the 70s um, as a story of quite like intense kind of uh, social conflicts in lots of different dimensions. Um, there's of course uh, you know at this point in the relatively recent history the uh, struggle around the Vietnam War uh, is kind of in in, in the popular imagination Um, but then the 80s uh, is um, you know the the, the period of um, Reagan's uh, It's Morning in America advert and so on like the kind of the sense of a renewed uh, promise of America um, and so I think, although it seems very plausible that there would be a kind of um, an apocalyptic literature that would grow up in the 70s, I kind of struggle to, re- to like work out why it reappeared in the 90s. So, like for example, the militia movement, um, which becomes, becomes very, very prominent. Uh, uh, again, again, the 90s, of course, the, the, the McVeigh bombing and so on. I kind of try and work, I, I don't understand why it resurged at that point. Like I can't give a kind of clear history the 90s is, is, is a period of american triumphalism as far as i'm concerned right it's a period in which america has, has won the cold war um and so on and i kind of i kind of wonder if you guys could supply uh, a kind of missing reason why although it seems comprehensible in the late 70s why there'd be this kind of this the turner diaries why is that the militia movement would then resurge in the 90s or is it kind of just a matter of uh, the kind of maturing of a subculture or something i mean what kind of history can we give that plots the the waning and and and, and waxing of of, of these uh the, the, this kind of gun subculture or something or the the militia culture or the particular far right variant of that of that underground that that, that subculture yeah i mean i definitely think um it's there's several factors there i think uh you put it nicely that there is part of it is a maturation of a subculture uh because you know the militia movement obviously starts way before like in the yeah like in yeah. the 1950s um but i think you know the lack of like this external cold world cold war enemy kind of uh, led a lot of Americans to kind of turn inward. And, you know, in the 90s, there was a lot of conversation about, you know, of course, like things like affirmative action, um, you know, public schools, what's being taught in public schools. You know, there was a lot of anxiety about like they're teaching uh, Ebonics in school and that kind of thing. There were a lot of these kinds of talking points. And that ultimately, I think, comes down to like, you know, this this libertarian fear of big government really jump starts 
um, with the civil rights and black freedom movement, where, you know, a, a point of radicalization for a lot of these like Cold War era Nazis like William Luther Pierce or anybody that came out of the John Birch Society is this idea that like, <laughs> you know, the civil rights movement is oppressing white people, right? That the government is overstepping its bounds by, you know, desegregating schools. And this is like, you know, they talk about this all the time. They feel they felt, you know, quite oppressed for the first time by their own government, right? Because the the order that they understood, the social order that they understood was being uh, overturned and, you know, the government was using coercion and force to, you know, whatever, send the National Guard to desegregate schools. And so, you know, that kind of stuff then pops up again in the 80s and 90s. I think in the 90s, particularly, um, you know, in the Clinton era, Right. So Democrats in power and uh, I think certainly helped kind of in that radicalization. But, you know, also you have simmering for that entire, you know, several decades, the phenomenon of right wing radio and yeah. and all that stuff. Right. So which was know. already tied to the militia movement. I mean, we ended up covering <coughs> a really weird episode about. UFOs and shit, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, these like shortwave broadcasts that were being bounced across the country also had the strong militia vibe to them. And of course, you know, I mean, Ruby Ridge happened right in '92, right. and uh, well, this well, was well, Ruby Ridge again for people who don't know. Well, that was uh, so. Oh God, what was his fucking name? Um, Do you mean the person who uh, Randy Weaver? Do you mean the person who is? Yeah, right. Randy Weaver. Randy Thank Weaver. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah. So, as my understanding is that uh, Randy Weaver was a fella who attended um, uh, Aryan Nations gathering, a Christian identity gathering, not necessarily as like a follower. Like he went out there to the church to see what was up. Uh, he was entrapped by a couple of feds and um, did not react well. And sort of fortified his house, and this standoff uh, began that lasted a really long time, resulting in uh, um, his death. Uh, hold on, is that true, or did he get arrested? He so his, his wife this. was was his shot. His wife died. By his kid died. A, yeah. So and that and the and the U.S. marshal was killed. Um, right. And, and his child was killed as well. And yes. his dog was shot. Yes. And then uh, and Randy right. was prosecuted. Yes. Um, incidentally, McVeigh uh, would pass around along with copies of the Turner Diary. He would pass around the sort of name and address and photo of the uh, sniper that um, killed one of Randy Weaver's family members. Yeah, and just to say, McVeigh is the person who did the Oklahoma City bombing. Right. But but this this would also account for a sudden upswing in the '90s. You know, this kind of stuff. Um, for sure. Yeah, the I guess fear so that they're that coming kind of for you. you. There were smaller scale, um, like sieges like that on on certain militia compounds, even in the eighties, um, that didn't make um, as much news because you know women and children didn't die uh, often. Yeah. It was just you know um, a couple guys in a house having an armed standoff with federal agents. But I mean, if you read. Um, like for example, Christian identity texts or anything, Bob Matthews writings from the order, you know, they reference a lot of these lesser known 
um, you know, standoffs between like the federal government and, you know, either militia guys or, or Nazis, right. Christian identity. I mean, there's a strong overlap there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Going back to like tax protesters as early as what, like the fucking fifties, I think even. Right. Yeah. Um, so there is, there is a, a pedigree there. But also, uh, Christian identity has been a pretty important factor in keeping that alive, too. Like, um, it's, it's, it never surprises me when we come across, just by accident, some crazy fucking militia out there in, like, the Southwest. And it, it turns out that they're obviously linked to, like, fucking Christian identity uh, groups, churches, etc. So that, it's been a, and that's been a constant presence in the U.S. sort of under the radar there for God for since the, yeah, since the 50s. I think part of it's reflected in the book itself in that the like you said the conclusion of the book is not it's it's still one of conflict and violence like the utopia is one where you're constant white people need to be constantly purifying themselves through violence and I think in that moment of triumph there is a need to construct a new uh, a new enemy in which to purge yourself against and you get the new world order and and big government and this kind of thing which I think yes is really telling about you know the ultimate society in which these people want to create like Nobody is safe eventually. Right. There's they're surrounded by mutants in the end that they have to fight forever at the end of the Turner Diaries. Yes. <laughs> One of the ways we've kind of um talked about this in the in, in the past, and I, I kind of wonder what you think about this, is is a distinction between different parts of, of the far right as being kind of divided by their relationship between means and ends. Maybe we talked about this in a previous podcast. But you have the kind of conservative part of the far right, or, or the conservative part of the right rather. That is, that wants essentially the status quo to stay and then use the kind of typical means of politics to do that. You've got the reactionaries who want the status quo before, status quo ante, um, and then use more or less traditional means to achieve that. Then you've got fascists who want the status quo ante who use like any means at all to achieve that. And then you've got what we call the black pilled, right? Um, and the black pilled are not really concerned with a particular end in mind but will use any means to achieve it, right? So there's a kind of a, a sense that the means of politics, the things that one does to achieve political ends, become a kind of the object of fixation. So it's violence rather than the thing that you can get from violence. That becomes the kind of the object of, of fascination. Uh, and maybe the Turner Diaries' significance in the kind of the overall history of, of, of mass uh, of kind of mass shootings and, and, and neo-Nazi violence more generally is that it's, it's one of the first moments where like that lack of a, actual positive end is fully articulated there's no good reason to carry out the violence but the violence itself is the end it is the thing that is desired oh it's also it receives the most description in the text like i said i mean there's no emotional information there you learn nothing about the relationships really the the majority of the text is devoted to describing the aftermath of violent acts and and how these these acts are are accomplished and also as you were saying earlier like there's there's not really any justification given in the text. If you don't already believe in the racial hierarchies that the text presumes, it doesn't make much sense, right? So there's a kind of a, there's an absent justification. There's just a kind of a, there's an expression of and description of violence that is somehow, you know, um, somewhat kind of, uh, kind of unrelated in some sense, like some kind of peculiar distance from its own justification. Um, yeah, I think it's one of those kind of troubling things about the text. I wanted to kind of ask about where that where that went next, right? Because you mentioned earlier um, James Mason, right, who writes a, a newsletter, which is then kind of compiled and becomes a um, a major talking point, I guess, in in the kind of the edge of the neo-Nazi circles in in, in the far right, in the alt right, sorry. And that newsletter is called Siege, 
um, it's written throughout the 80s, uh, so therefore kind of a bit after the Turner Diaries. And I wonder how you thought the two kind of the texts compared, because the way I see Siege is, is much more kind of fragmented and chaotic and what's kind of often referred to as a kind of accelerationist. But um, I wonder if, if you see that as a kind of progression of the dynamics of the Turner Diary, or is it it's unrelated, or like is it kind of a attempt to kind of outdo the Turner Diaries? Like, how how do you exactly do you see the relationship between the two texts? I mean, to me, um, the most clear relationship between the two texts is kind of their emphasis on because uh, one thing that the Turner Diaries is also well known for is its nerdery in terms of like yeah. weapons and yes. gear and yeah. all that stuff. And that's why it's often described as a, like a manual or a handbook, which I think is a little bit of a generous yeah, it's, it's uh, not really. term for it. Yeah. I mean, because like we'll see with like the order later on when they do try to carry out some of the specific things from, uh, from the Turner diaries, it fails spectacularly and whatever. But I mean, there is a considerable amount of, uh, text given to like, you know, describing weapons and tactics and, and all of that. And Mason definitely does that in siege. Um, and you know, that's one of, you know, the selling points, I guess, for, for people that like siege is that like, you know, it was, you know, James Mason borrows from everywhere, right? He talks about, um, guerrilla strategy. He, you know, Mao, he's, Sites Bakunin, he cites right. you know everybody under this any kind of political violence you can probably find it somewhere in Siege again a book that's entirely too long and difficult <laughs> to read yes um, yeah Fritz and I fucking split up and read it's <laughs> we done it, it damaging uh, it, 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 yeah it's interesting what you say about it's, the book isn't isn't a manual. Because um, he he clearly, Pierce clearly wants it to be, you know, the way he describes how to make a a bomb, for example, and all this kind of stuff, um, and how to like organize a a terrorist cell, all this, um, in in very great detail. And I often think that, um, you know, there's a certain kind of liberal analysis of of the Turner Diaries in that everything is put into this book and it's malign influence. You can see it, and they kind of they tie it to various shooters and various far right radicals and and this kind of thing. Without and it's a way to um, kind of have this kind of alien object um, without then interrogating the deeper kind of um, reasons and motivations that go behind far right extreme violence, right? Yeah, I'd say it's fetishized as much by liberals as by Nazis in that way, as like a a powerful text, a text that somehow itself is cursed, you know that it can yeah, create like, like, Nazis out of thin air. A lot of times they'll be like, oh, and in, in his, uh, on his PDF folder in his computer, he had a copy of the Turner Diaries, he had a copy of, of Hunter, and, and therefore we can see the presence of this book, when really these, these books, are, these PDFs and these extreme manuals are circulated really wildly. U- ubiquitous, on, yeah. on, And so it's really likely that a lot of these guys will have it or will have read it just because, you know, they're fascists, so that's what they do. They'll have a copy of the Turner Diaries. To this day, there's never been a more important piece of fash fiction. You know, it's going to be everywhere. But I think also, I mean, William Luther Pierce probably lacked, you know, some of the, 
I don't know, say hands-on experience with, with a lot of this stuff. So I think that even a lot of the, the nerdery, the gear nerdery that comes into it is stuff that he learned probably from being surrounded by other guys who were into that kind of thing. So in that sense, well, hold on. Don't, don't, don't forget. He was, uh, I mean, the FBI at least believed he was selling weapons and he also maintained revolutionary notes, which was a part of the attack magazine in which the Turner Diaries was published and the revolutionary notes were often uh, different types of weaponry, schematics, trap making, survivalist stuff. However, interestingly, um, I did hear that many of these diagrams were photocopied from leftist guerrilla publications, um, which is something that they do all the time. Yeah, Mason did that as well. That was yes. that was kind of the the driving idea of um you know his little split off there from the american nazi party which is to model it off of like you know leftist urban guerrillas or whatever and try to attract that milieu to the white power movement oh also you know let's not forget that he was a a self-sabotaged physicist and engineer you know so he uh he knew what he was doing back in the day and i'm sure like after he made that choice to give up being useful, you know, to society and helpful and become what he became, um, I'm sure that haunted him. Like the frustration of being like a competent engineer and physicist, yet being surrounded by the people that you attract when you write things like the Turner Diaries, you know. But let's not forget he was also a kind of a philosopher, right, uh, who initiated the, uh, the idea of cosmotheism, right, uh, and therefore, um, you know, one of the kind of foremost contributors to human knowledge. Well, you know, he didn't exactly invent cosmotheism. We found out that he may have, in fact, it looks like he did, borrow it from uh, a Jewish-Israeli philosopher um, and just sort of fucking rebranded a little bit. He didn't even rebrand it. He just called it cosmotheism, which is what the original philosophy was called. Um, Quite interesting. It was his attempt to sort of turn, like, to be able to watch Cosmos, the Carl Sagan series, to be able to watch that as a Nazi, I think he, he wrote, essentially he wrote three pamphlets. That is the entirety of the religion of cosmotheism. And then it was since added to by his uh, very few followers that still remain. And what's the purpose of the idea? Like, what's the, oh. what's the purpose of cosmotheism? It's literally, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty much to help develop the cosmotheist community of, of Aryans. So the entire religion basically says that nature itself has, uh, has this, this fundamental order, although somehow always with these people, that fundamental order is now disordered, you know, that somehow they're losing it, they're on the way out, they're close to extinction, etc., you know. And uh, his answer to this is that nature has gifted us the cosmo, the the cosmotheist church, and um, and this community is the ultimate reason for existence at this point. It's very simple. It's very. It's just like Pierce is great and everybody else sucks. That's the point of cosmotheism. It's remarkable how like closely it approximates. Um, Genesis, right? The, the the book of Genesis, the the sense of the fall, the sense of the, you know, the um, the, the disordered nature that that was once perfect and and pure and is now kind of like you know transfigured. Uh, maybe that's just a basic mythical structure, but um, it's interesting that it's essentially just a Christian story. I think. 
Yeah, maybe we, that's not so surprising. We've got sorry, it's so funny that you're lot. you're saying that while the church bells are going off in the background. Yes, you're, perfect. you're quite English perfect. village. <laughs> yeah. I don't live in a quite English village. I live in uh well, uh beep, but like uh you know, um <laughs> uh Well, listen though, we were commenting on this as well because like the moral structure of all of these Nazi religions that we've looked at, um, the moral structure tends to be very Christian you know, in a way like in that, in the sense of like the version of Christianity, which is about original sin, uh, the wrath of God and that kind of thing. Like they, they look for the damned to be punished, but the, but since Pierce is a scientist, right? His, he has to take the, the structure, the lore behind that whole religion. It's very much like your kind of Carl Sagan, uh, type we are the cosmos sort of idea but it has, it has no sense there's not there's nothing that sticks these two things together beyond pierce himself it's we are the cosmos but racist yes we're the cosmos I mean, but racist yeah because there is like uh, within like the universe of of nazi religions especially in the u.s like there are a couple examples of ones that want to that are deliberately going away from like uh you know the christian model specifically and cosmotheism is one of them and creativity is another uh but both of them are just not very well thought out right so it's it's like you know there is a natural order we are part of it but you know there's obviously a clear hierarchy that we are on top but somehow now we're no longer and there's you know it's natural and it's unnatural we're the best but we're the losers but cosmotheism in particular is very rudimentary in that sense. Like Fritz said, I mean, it is only like three pamphlets. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm not sure it's not more really than 20 pages it. altogether. Yeah. They did a couple hymns too, which we listened to. And they're oh, a hymn. Yeah. Very good. Race of Beauty. And it's a classic on the show. Beauty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I watched like an, yeah. maybe like an hour long video about cosmotheism uh, that was made by uh, someone from National Alliance. It was, it's pretty, um, oh. had a very kind of PowerPoint vibe. Like uh, kind of uh, clip art and word art and so on, kind of uh, text flying in from the the side, very kind of nineties. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, the ultimate stem lord, uh, stem lord uh, theology, right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Pierce would appreciate that in PowerPoint form. I think he would have <laughs> mm-hmm. thought that was maybe appropriate. It's a, yeah, yeah, maybe it's unfair to engineers to call him the ultimate stem lord, but I feel like he is in some in some ways. Um, this this series you've been doing on on fascist fiction, I think, is is interesting. Do you think that on the far right, fiction has a particular uh, role as compared to other kind of conventional kinds of political propaganda? And and what is that role if you think it has a role? I think it has a, a really strong role. I mean, I, I just like thinking about we covered um, Birth of a Nation a, a while ago on the show, and. Uh, I think that's that, kind of the ultimate fast fic. Yeah, yeah, sense. and Turner Diaries bo- borrows a lot from Birth of a Nation too, uh, in its representation of the gun raids and stuff. But like, the gun raids didn't happen in Birth of a Nation, but I mean, they they happen the same way uh, essentially. And uh, I mean, this movie made the clan, you know, they, the second clan, yeah. The, the this book made the order. Uh, they this fiction is fundamental to their self image and. Uh, idea of their mission and it's it's interesting i mean there are like really common themes in it and that's you know of course like over the top violence 
and very like simplistic storylines that are you know, almost they are stereotypes. I mean, yeah, like childish, it, like very childish. And like it extends even to the realm of, for example, also related to National Alliance video games, you know. And oh, yes. Right. Uh, the way that, you know, <laughs> there were like, what, three or four of those. Zog's um, Nightmare 2. Zog's Nightmare 2. Yeah. All, all yeah, these we like, played those as ultra well. violent <laughs> video games. And like ultimately, you know, um, it's it's this dystopia in which. White people are being subjected to what white people have done to other people. It's this kind of anxiety that what if, what if, you know, what if they made us slaves? Yeah. Yes. What would that look like? And also their desires for the future, they fear others having, you know, so a lot of it, they assume it's, I've called it Nazi brain. It's the, the problem when you can't imagine another worldview outside of being a Nazi. So everybody becomes some kind of Nazi, you know? So Fashfic is like full of enemy uh, fascist type powers. It's just that they are the liberals. They are the communists. They are the feminists, whatever it is. What kind of powers? What do you, how do you mean? Like what in the of sense of like they having a, a powerful, um, highly repressive totalitarian state powerful intelligent agencies things like this things that um they themselves call for and admire very deeply but you find that their enemy looks a lot like them in their in their yep. books yes yeah and hyper concerned with race of course i mean their enemy is always yeah trying to yes. like breed them out yeah. of, you know, their enemy is obsessed with race yeah but also with uh Gender, right? With also with kind oh, of subverting yes. gender roles. Yes. Um, Alex has written a very good question here, so I'm just going to ask him to write to say it. Oh, me? Oh, you want me to read my own question? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you permission. Uh, thank you, thank you. Once and once only. Okay, so, you know, the thing about, I haven't, the way I prepared for this episode was I've read The Turn Diaries a long time ago, but I didn't want to read it again um, because no, uh, who well wants done. to do that twice? So I listened to your your um, episode that you did on it, which was very very useful. So thank you for thank you for that. And it, it occurred to me <laughs> listening back that Pierce's depictions of women in the book are deeply weird, and yes, um, they're kind of reminiscent of what we've talked about before. It's like the depictions of women in the diaries of of free corps commanders. You know, Carl. Uh, what's right. he called? Klaus Terrellite. Klaus. I keep calling him Carl. Uh, Klaus Terrellite's, um male fantasies, where the women are kind of you know, rabid, demonic, communist um, harpies or kind of triangular blobs of nothingness with completely incomprehensible, you know, they kind of, the way they um, talk about getting married is it's in one throwaway line, they never actually name their wives, this kind of thing. Then they talk about their comrades in the, in the, in the units and this kind of thing. And, you know, I was kind of struck by how, how um, Peter, uh, Turner describes, L. Turner, the character, describes the death of his wife, Catherine. It's just kind of a, a throwaway line that his wife died. And that's a yeah. good thing because she had been previously been sullied by black people. And therefore, you know, right. therefore it's good that she was dead now. And I wondered how, yes. uh, do I have a question about this? Like what function do women play in the, in the Turner Diaries? What, what role is, does, does Pierce assign them? I think Catherine is the most interesting one. Catherine being uh, Earl Turner's wife in this. Um, there's also a really hilarious kind of sex scene that we have a clip of William Pierce reading. 
Which um, I can ne- which I can never forgive you for for playing playing in my ears. You are you're welcome, <laughs> and I'm sorry. Yeah, um, but uh, Catherine, when she is with Pierce, that is when they're in the same place. Um, Catherine is a doting housewife. She does makeup for the for the guys when they do disguises. She seems to be some kind of a secretary. When Pierce is away, Catherine is a highly independent revolutionary hero. Um, and so we hear Earl say, like, Catherine just got back from this amazing operation. And now that she's with me, we, all we see her do is basically wife um, Earl, you know. And then so you've got, you've got that. So I guess that would be your blank triangle uh, with, with a twist. With the twist being, as long as Pierce isn't around, sorry, <laughs> slip of the tongue, as long as <laughs> Earl isn't around, uh, his wife can basically do what she wants, you know. And I should mention here for listeners that Pierce has had five wives in his life, and most of them were more or less laborers in Pierce's compound. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he had um, most of them after his first wife were from Eastern Europe, right? Uh, Hungary. Uh, after his second wife. His second after wife. After his second wife. Yeah. And they're basically kept on the compound in West Virginia to just like, yeah, work. <laughs> yeah. I think his last Secretarial wife labor and... wasn't allowed to have a TV. Uh, she, would, she was extremely lonely. Very sad stories. All of them, but barely spoke English. Yeah. Yeah. So his relationship to women is. And then, and then in the book, there. in the book, we also have Ilsa. Ilsa being this teenager that of course he, Earl rescues from, um, being defiled by minorities and uh ilsa has this insane story of being this basically like he he points out and really wants us to know that ilsa was attractive at 15 years old like that's in the text it's very important and that ilsa this attractive 15 year old had this idyllic life until her parents sent her to a mixed race school where she was either, she was like sexually assaulted every single day. And then when Ilsa would tell her mother, who is this domineering feminist type, uh, whose husband has been completely dominated by her in this very, you know, he, he makes it sound quite unnatural and, and pathetic, you know. Uh, his, the mother of Ilsa accuses Ilsa of being a racist and beats her, you know. So then this is how he imagines... Um, this this character now he does the earl doesn't have sex with this character in the book but i mean like everything short of that you know long descriptions of her body how beautiful she is etc etc how innocent how blonde and then the the other description that really stands out about women is when earl is traveling and he sees like a communal farm run by you know young white people and all the workers out there are young white girls who he also spends a lot of time describing as beautiful, ruddy-cheeked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're either working in the fields, <laughs> their they're wife and Earl, or they are uh, comp- running a lifetime risk of, being, of having their honor stolen from minorities, et cetera. And of course, there's the clear allusion there to the de- desegregation of schools and the yes. ultimate effect of that. Right? Yes. Yeah, which, which is, we should also remember was yeah. a time of enormous terrorism in the U.S. Uh, 
the, the, the kind of childish nature of this is really comes out in the, in this character, you know, like oh, she's yeah. getting sexually assaulted every day in her mixed race school and her feminist mother refuses to believe it because it's, that's racism. It's, I mean, yeah. it's, you can't make that shit up <laughs> unless you're got Nazi brain, in which case I guess it's easy. I feel like the, the book kind of, um, acts as, um, there's a kind of very common trend in a lot of these kind of, uh, uh, manifested we've seen by far-right shooters a kind of almost lack of justification there's a uh, there's a cut and paste aspect to all these manifestos so the buffalo shooters manifesto is a is a blatant rewrite of the christchurch shooters manifesto who you know yeah, in turn right. he references bravik and and bravik is like a bravik's manifesto is like a, a cut mashup of all different kinds of articles and and academic um papers and sources and all this kind of stuff it's not particularly original writing and yeah you know, as we've said you know in the turn diaries, there's it borrows from Birth of Nation. You know, the some state kind of borrows from a Jack London novel, The Iron Heel. Yeah, aspect, well, yeah. really, obviously, in its in its structure and its narrative structure and its the way it's written. Um, and also from uh, what was it called? The uh, is it called the the spook that sat in the corner? The spook behind the door? Is that what it is? Uh, no, I I actually think that that's kind of um. You think that's incorrect? Yeah. I saw I saw that in an article and yeah, I, I don't think that, I think that's really find that. I didn't find that particularly that one particularly convincing no. Um, because that because that film the spook who sat by the door it, there it is it's a, it's a really interesting film uh, but you know it was made to be like an inversion of the black black exploitation genre uh, which is like you know well what if you know you had a lot of the genre conventions of black exploitation but they actually form a revolutionary group uh, and you know help overthrow the white power system. Uh, now, like I've seen people say that, you know, because it came out slightly before um, Pierce wrote the Turner diaries, that right. he certainly, you know, would have been aware of it and would have been aware of it. But I mean, like, you know, that, that comes from, you know, the era of urban gorillas in the U S right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's not something that you have to see a movie to know about if you were around at that time. Right. Cause there was, right you know, popular culture was highly focused on, you know, the weathermen or the black Panthers or, you know, whatever. So I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in a way, it does the terror fulfill a role of, of, of creating a justification for really extreme acts of violence. Like it's not, it's not necessarily, obviously the, the, the role, the, the intention of the book is to encourage Nazis to do, to do as much violence as they can and be as extreme as they can. Um, but they need a justification for that, and they need this kind of fictional uh, narrative in order to, in order for that to happen. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that Fashvik does in general for their movement is that it does provide an outlet for that for having that feeling of justification. That honestly, where else are you going to get it from? I mean, you know, it's it's already a highly they already have a highly fictionalized account of white genocide or you know the oppression of men and whatever it is uh but this gives them all this lore you know to sort of act it out in their imaginations i think and so i think with it's quite necessary for them and particularly since yeah i mean part of their narrative is that you know the media is controlled by whether it's jews or world gov or whatever but like you know the the healthy white male has no you know, book he can read or, you know, like a, a, a true account of like how things are and what will be, you know, if things yeah. continue on this path. So, you know, like 
they have, they create their own stories and they get read no matter how badly written there they are because, you know, because we read intended for them. It's, (laughs) I mean, cause like, you know, I remember like back in the day looking at Stormfront and reading their film reviews. Oh, right. And there was like, you know, it's, it's hilarious if, (laughs) if you've never done it before and you're into that kind of thing, it's very funny because they try to parse like racial messages from Hollywood movies. Um, and so, of course, since, you know, there's yet to be, I don't know, uh, a very, like, successful, prolific writer out of their movement uh, that can, you know, actually write good fiction, they just are forced to, you know, create their own and, like, you know, take aspects of things that they see in, like, Hollywood films and then try to, you know, regurgitate it into some sort of Nazi version of that. Yes. Because, uh, like, I mean, like, in, for example, there's there's a, there's a, the over the top violence is almost like, I mean, like Mondo cinema level. You know what I mean? Like the, the shit, mm-hmm. like in the Turner diaries where like, you know, b- black people are butchering white people right. to eat. Right. I mean, like, and, and like those vivid descriptions of like the slaughterhouse. And shit yeah. Like that yeah. Is, is, you know, it's like straight out of a horror movie. Right. I mean, yes, it's, it, it, you know, in a horror movie, you understand it's not real. Right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> But to them, this is like, no, this is what will happen. And this is why you need to, like, you know, stand stand up like man. You know what I mean? And, and fight. Yeah. That was Bob Matthews, ladies and gentlemen. Bob Matthews. Stand up like man. Um, Pierce Acolyte. But you know what? What occurs to me, though, is that um, how long these people just simply have not cared that the protocols of the Elders of Zion are fictitious. I mean, it's like... From as early as the 1930s, people were already giving you the line like, okay, fine, they're fictitious, but they tell the truth, you know? Uh, and that's, that seems like where this stuff falls, too. Yeah, because I don't, I don't know if anybody really, you know, sees that and they're like, yeah, they're going to be eating us soon, you know what I mean? But, like, <laughs> they, they, they want that kind of over-the-top violence because then it can, you know, rationalize whatever they do. Sorry, I can't ask any more questions because there's a wedding outside. But uh, I have some. Uh, but, uh, it's a great it's, soundtrack. But they're still, they're still going with these bells. So you can I, you can ask through the bells. It's just it's a, yeah, it's no, not I, a professional like show, uh, you know. We're, we are we're, a professional uh, show. We got we're trying to cultivate an attitude of professionalism here. Okay. <laughs> go, 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 Wait, why did not? you invite us? Have Hang you on, not heard you our not? show? <laughs> go, go, go on, go on, Fritz. What were, what were you saying? Uh, we need someone to like compare ourselves against. You know, it's a contrast thing, right? Like. Yeah, yeah, re- ah, re- ah, relatively professional. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I can be your fool. That's cool. <laughs> okay, um, well, maybe I'll finish up with the last question then, and then all right. if you can't, if you can't um, ask any more because the bells are, are too strong, um, <laughs> you kind of mentioned at the start of the episode that the term diaries became so influential or so relevant because it wasn't in the era of the internet. Do you think that? The far-right internet culture we have now, and that is likely to continue, um, even if it's in a kind of a lull point at the moment. Do you think that has replaced the, the Turner Diaries in some respects? It's not as necessary anymore, or do you think we're going to st- still see this this book cropping up again and again and again? I mean, I I definitely think we'll see Fashvik as long as they're fascists and Nazis, you know, because they just inevitably produce it. But what's interesting to me about, for example, like you know. Bravik and the Christchurch shooting and and Buffalo now with these with these manifestos that are kind of more overt. They don't have to be um, 
you know, fictionalized, right. You know, like a, you can just go and write 50 pages on what guns are the best and, uh, you know, what body armor to buy and this, that, and the other thing. And you don't have to fictionalize it because it is ultimately, ultimately a lot easier to spread on the internet. Now, like you, you can get your hands on it no matter what. I think maybe part of, you know, the appeal of the Turner diaries at the time is that you could, you know, it is ultimately fiction, right? So like, you know, you can't really ban it in that same way. I mean, not that they would in the U S anyway, because right. of, you know, free speech laws or whatever, but you know, um, you know, you could, you know, you could have it at a booth at a gun show or, you know, at a table at, you know, like a Rahoa concert or something. And, you know, you can be like, well, it's fiction. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a practical guide, but it's fiction. And, and now like you kind of don't need that anymore because, you know, everything's available on the internet and no matter, you know, how quickly they try to take it offline, it circulates endlessly, you know, like the, just looking at any like Nazi telegram, like the Buffalo shooters manifesto was up within minutes and circulating absolutely everywhere, including also of course, video of the shooting and, and the like. Uh, so in, in that sense, it's almost gone even more black pilled, I think. And, um, I, sh- I should say, um, uh, George this is not necessary for our listeners, but um, at least some of this material is illegal in the UK. Uh, uh-huh. So I wouldn't go in searching for it um, in Canada as well, I believe. Yeah, I think I uh, if you're in the US, you're probably fine. But uh, yeah, elsewhere, um, Germany, much more of it is illegal, uh, and so on. So yeah, d- don't search for this stuff because oh, it no, will. Don't. Yeah, you it, shouldn't it, read it, it anyway. It's yeah, garbage. No, it's, it's, it's very boring. But it's. Um, I mean, I haven't read the vast majority of what we've been talking about. But like, you know, um, you know if if I had, uh, I would advise you not to not to read it because it's very boring. But yeah, as you just said, legal legally speaking, uh, if you're in the UK, this is not not a good area of research for you. Got a, a loophole for that though is to go to our Patreon page, uh, become a patron, <laughs> where you heard all the videos one hand for the yeah. other. Yes. Yes. as well as helpful manuals. Uh, you'll love it. <laughs> That is a very good idea, though. Um, do support our guests, uh, Fritz and Boris. Thank you very much for coming. Um, you can listen to the, the Empire Never Ended. It's available wherever your podcasts. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, I guess we'll you have you over at our place to, uh, next, huh? Yeah, we'll just keep this going. Yeah, keep yeah. this rolling. Our turn to host. All right. Cool. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Twelve rules. Yeah,